Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Jim Cosgrove. Last name is spelled C-O-S-G-R-O-V-E. And he just published a fantastic true crime book, which I read through yesterday. I finished it. The title of the book is Ripple, A Long, Strange Search for a Killer. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can see me holding up a copy of the book right now, book cover. And uh, it's a very original approach to a true crime story that uh, I haven't read before. I've read a lot of true crime books and interviewed a lot of true crime authors, but this one stands uh, alone kind of in a unique place and uh, takes place over a long period of time. He can talk more about that. But Jim Cosgrove learned the art of storytelling as the youngest of eight children in a large extended Irish Catholic family. While working as a feature writer for the Albuquerque Journal in 1995, he picked up the trail of a cold case involving the disappearance of a family friend, Frank McGonagall, a lovable, hapless, Grateful Dead fan who left his Kansas City home in 1982 and never returned. Ripple, which gives a nod to the 1970 Grateful Dead song, is the culmination of this long, strange journey in Cosgrove's first true crime book, Cosgrove is a nationally recognized, award-winning children's entertainer known by his young fans as Mr. Stinky Feet. He is also the author of three children's books, and Everybody Gets Stinky Feet, a collection of inspirational, inspirational essays from his time as a parenting columnist for the Kansas City Star. But uh, you can see his website at jimcosgroveauthor.com. And again, the book we're going to talk, the true crime book we're going to talk about today is Ripple. A long, strange search for a killer. So, Jim Cosgrove, welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. Thank you, William. It's an honor. Awesome. So, for people who may not have heard your name or this book, I saw it on uh, True Murder. I thought I saw you interviewed by a friend of mine, Dan Zupansky. Yeah. Uh, maybe you could just. It's a long story, but maybe you could just start at the very beginning. Uh, your background and where where this whole journey sure. for you started. Sure. You bet. Well, I as you mentioned, was a feature writer for the Albuquerque Journal. I was not a hard-nosed investigative journalist. I wrote puff pieces. I wrote happy stories about interesting people doing interesting things. And while I was working at the newspaper, I decided to go back to school and get a master's in creative nonfiction writing. And I, I just kind of did it for, for kicks, really. And I came to the point where I needed to write a master's thesis I didn't have one. And I was home, back to my home in Kansas City, visiting my mother. And I took her to uh, daily mass at the parish church where we grew up in Kansas City. And as we were walking out, I saw a statue in the courtyard of St. Francis of Assisi. And at the base of the statue was a, a plaque that read, in memory of Frank McGonigal. And I remembered all of a sudden, that when I was in high school, Frank McGonigal was the topic of discussion at our dinner table and uh, amongst our friends because he had left home one day. It was actually 40 years ago, a couple weeks from now, 40 years ago in June of 82, that he just took off, left home. He was living at home as a 26-year-old, and his family never heard from him again. And uh, I remembered this story when I was with my mother, and I'm wow, you know, whatever happened with that? I don't remember uh, hearing or knowing of a resolution. And she told me kind of the, the path that it, what had happened. And I thought, man, that would make a great topic for my master's thesis. Do you think the McGonagall family would be 
willing to chat with me. And she said, absolutely. You know, they're old family friends of my parents and many of my siblings were in school with their siblings. And so I approached them and they were so open and willing to work with me. And so we embarked on this deep dive into what they did to look for and and find out what happened to their son, Frank, and their brother, Frank. So that's how I stumbled upon it. Um, So the kind of the the sorry to interrupt, but this this was in Kansas City, right? So you were family friends, two large Irish Catholic families. Yes, yeah, we grew up in an idyllic kind of uh, neighborhood in the city um, that uh, was heavy Irish Catholic and Jewish, pretty much. In fact, (laughs) growing up. I thought there were only two kinds of people, Catholics and, Jew- and Jewish people. I thought that was it because that was all our neighbors were. And as I came to find out, I found out later as an adult that um, most of the Protestants had moved across the state line into Kansas from Kansas City, Missouri, into Kansas because um, the schools, the, the public school system in Kansas City, Missouri at the time was was really struggling. And so a lot of the people left but the folks who stayed behind in kansas city missouri uh the, the catholics and the jewish families we had our own schools so we stayed behind and so what was fascinating about our neighborhood was i really almost every other or every house on the block uh was irish catholic or irish slash french catholic or irish slash german catholic um and we all belonged to the jewish community center because that's where that's that was the way we grew up. We belonged to the we swam there, and we played basketball there and baseball in the summer, and and um, and we found out that we had a lot in common with the Jewish kids, as far as our backgrounds go, and our overbearing mothers. Right. So Frank was part of this other large family too, right? So he had kind of an interesting background, and yes. So um, the McGonagall family, there, uh, Bill and Joe McGonagall. His parents had nine children, and Frank was in the middle. And uh, they owned a very popular meat market in South Kansas City. And anybody who grew up in Kansas City in general, but especially on the south side of Kansas City, they all knew the McGonagall family. They knew McGonagall's store. They knew the meat market. That's where they, you got your turkey at Thanksgiving. That's where you got your ham at Easter. That's that that's that's where you went. And so everybody knew who they were. And besides having a large family, you knew someone who was re- related to them. You knew someone, or you, one of your siblings dated one of them or, you know, was uh, in school with one of them. So I was younger. I'm, I'm about nine years younger than, than Frank is or would have been. And um, he was in uh, my brother John's class. And I was always kind of envious of my older siblings who had McGonagall's in their classes with them. So we all kind of grew up kind of knowing each other's business. And, you know, and so when Frank disappeared, it was like one of our cousins disappeared or one of our, our brothers had disappeared, you know, it was, it was that kind of palpable for us. And, you know, and of course everybody prayed for him and, remembered him and and we were, you know, and kind of in secret, kind of glad it was not our family, sort of that sort of a thing as well. 
And he was kind of Frank was kind of an adventurer too, though. He would just take off and drive and yes. he was a deadhead, right? Following Grateful Dead. Yeah, he was a deadhead. He and his brothers uh, would, would go to dead shows and around the country. In fact, he and his brother had just returned from a trip to California to see the dead in Berkeley. And um, so uh, when he disappeared, his parents really didn't think a whole lot of it because he was known to take it. Besides, he was 26 years old. He, he, he had been in college for about six years. He moved back home, was working at the grocery store at market and uh, was you know living at home, but he was an adult and he would take off for two or three, four days at a time and uh, just go out on an adventure. And as his folks said, they didn't think much of it, you know, for the first couple of days he was gone because that's what he did. But when they didn't hear from him after four or five days, they started to worry because Frank always called. He always let them know where he was and what was going on. And so that's when they became kind of suspicious that something was up. And so they contacted the local police and then, and then their, their journey began. Right. And it was a long journey, right? Yes. They spent nine years looking for him and they looked for him. Well, they scoured newspapers. Uh, the police weren't a whole lot of help, of course, because he was an adult and there was not much they could do. Now, they so they enlisted the help of the, you know, the Catholic network in other cities. And, and so they asked people to be on the lookout for him. They scoured newspaper articles to see if there were any, you know, missing persons or people ended up showed up with amnesia or had been in a car accident. They went to Grateful Dead shows looking for him. Figured that'd be a good place to check him out. They they every time they passed a hitchhiker, they looked to see if it was Frank. And <clears throat> with the help of a police detective in Kansas City, Kansas, across the state line, they were able finally to make a match. And um, after nine years, right? Uh, so they were holding body. Yeah. Right. So they were holding masses. They had no idea which way he had gone. They really just had nothing for nine years. It was just an emptiness. Right? Yes. They were trying to remember they, where he was the day he, every day he left and that kind of thing. Right. They assumed he had gone West because he loved the West. And so they weren't so, they didn't realize that he had actually gone East because he had never gone East before. It was a new adventure for him. And before he left, the last thing he did was go to the bank and empty his bank account, which he had never done before. And he emptied, he, withdrew $3,800 in cash. And he had asked for traveler's checks. He had asked the bank teller to put a portion of that into traveler's checks. But the um, officer, the bank officer who issues the, the traveler's checks wasn't there that day. So she gave him $3,800 cash, part of which he peeled off and put into one of his socks because that's where he kept his money. He kept a wad of cash in his socks. And his brothers said, absolutely, that's, <laughs> that's what he did. Um, so yeah, they, um, and, and, it, you know, something really touching his mother every year for those nine years uh, at Christmas, she would wrap gifts for him and put them under the tree in the hopes that he would come home for Christmas and he never did. Right. And there was speculation, like, what did they do? There was a lot of loss and, and a oh, family was worried. Yeah. So, and you can imagine, I mean, just so a big family, um, what did we do to drive Frank away? Well, Frank and his brother, Mike, who's the youngest of the family, had a huge fight the day before he left 
at the store over something silly. It was how to how to strip and wax the floors at the store. And they got in this huge argument. And uh, the final words Mike said to his brother was, why don't you F off and die? And he said, I lived with that, went through five years of intense therapy to get through that. Uh, so that's that's the last thing he said to his brother. And he said, how did I know he was actually going to do that? You know. And when he took off the next day, there was a lot of guilt, um, of course, a lot of worry. And um, they began to look into their family too. Like, what did, how were we as a family? Did we do, did we create an environment that drove him away? Was he, did he feel safe here? Did he feel welcome here? And Frank was a gentle soul. He was, and, and as I have said to many people, he was somebody you knew. He was, he was like, man, you, you've had a brother or a cousin or a friend like him. He was adrift, kind of soul searching all the time, never quite fit. And he was a gentle, quiet soul in a family of really loud, outgoing uh, Irish people. <laughs> and he kind of didn't really fit in with that. He was more a person who stayed on the fringe. And so um, they kind of had to look at how he was, how they felt they treated him. And um so really, and this move for him was kind of a big one. It was like, I'm finally going to break out and go out on my own. I'm going to empty my bank account and I'm leaving and I'm going to go make my way in the world. That's how I look at it. All right. So like, and he also kind of was in a tough spot in his life too. Like he was a bit troubled and it seemed to have like a lot of, uh, Kind of a drug history too, right? Yes, right. He dropped a lot of acid, of course, smoked a lot of weed. He, uh, yes, a lot of psychedelics in his uh, in his past, and he often had kind of flashbacky type moments um, that he shared with his siblings, and he had suicidal thoughts uh, because, again, he and, and actually one of the uh, really, I feel like I was honored to be able to talk to so many, everyone in his family, everyone of his siblings and his parents, but also his therapist opened up and his parents said it would be okay if I spoke to his therapist. And he shared a lot with me. He said, you know, he was almost too good for this world. He just couldn't figure out, he, he wouldn't ever hurt anybody. And it was never in his purview that somebody would hurt him. You know, he was like Percival out to in search of the Holy Grail, that he he finally finally had broken loose to go, you know, to go uh, uh, prove himself as a young man, um, and so yeah, he was he was deeply troubled. Um, and right, so he was, kind of, he was like in a searching phase of his life at yes. that time. Yeah, his younger brother referred to him as a lost sailor, drifting. Right. I mean, he was kind of, he was just kind of like in that one of those phases of life, like uh, going to the next step. But then, so he was missing for nine years and then the local detective had a find, right? Can you talk right. about how that happened? Yeah. So there was a detective. So uh, one of the, um, the McGonagall kids' uh, uh, husband was a police officer in Kansas City, Kansas, which is across the state line. Uh, he was able to file a missing persons report in case Kansas City, Kansas. Um, saying that Frank was last seen in KCK, although he wasn't, but he was able to do that and get a police report filed. And 
an officer who had newly been assigned to the missing persons unit was going through some old files. He found like seven or eight files. I can't remember now it says in the book uh, of unsolved or maybe 10 unsolved files. And he asked if he could dig into them and they said, sure. And he started entering some of this information into the national crime computer. And within a day, he had hits on several of those cases. And one of them was Frank's. He had, they, he found a hit for a missing, I mean, an unidentified body in Merle's Inlet, South Carolina, Georgetown County, South Carolina, which is on the uh, Southern coast and is just between Myrtle Beach and Charleston. And so he contacted, asked, asked for, you know, they had uh, dental records, the McGonagall's had dental records, they, they had a match, and then he contacted the family, gathered them all together and said, we have found whom we believe to be Frank. And he has been, he had been murdered in this, in Merle's Inlet, the small town, a small fishing village. And the sheriff and the coroner had spent nine years trying to figure out who this unidentified body was. And in the meantime, had him buried there in a kind of a John Doe grave that said white male died June, 1982. Right. It was a mystery to, to have him even get into this small town on the coast of Georgia, right? Or South Carolina, South Carolina, South Carolina, yeah. right. Yes. Like, oh, you know, how did he end up there? And one thing about Frank, I mean, as, as disheveled physically as, as he was and how, how, how he may have been a drifter, he kept incredible details, including a, a mileage log. He kept a mileage log in his car. And so um, they were able to find when they found his car, they were, they were able to look at that mileage log and figure out how many miles he'd driven since he left home. Um, till when they found the car and he made pretty much a straight uh, there. He would have made a detour, but pretty much a straight line to the coast, whether he went south, like to Florida and then worked his way up the coast, or he went straight across to say, uh, you know, Virginia beach or, or, uh, North Carolina and then worked his way down. Um, he pretty much with, within five days, he had made it to the coast and that's when his body, well, they determined when he was killed. It was about five days after he left home. Right. So, I mean, and they, even that is very strange too, right? Like the whole, he just, uh, like he didn't last. I mean, he traveled, he was passed away within a week of leaving home. That, and they didn't yes. know that for nine years, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the they had found his body in some woods. And he was propped up against a tree. His car was gone. Of course, he had, and he had been stripped of all identification. He had, they found he had a bullet wound that grazed the side of his head, his temple, and then a wound that went, uh, shot into his eye that killed him. And they found there in this clearing in the woods, they found a sleeping bag that belonged to Frank and a, a fire ring had been built. So with some bricks and rocks, he'd built a fire ring and there was some kindling in there like he was about to start a fire. So he was there to camp. It looked like he'd gone there to spend the night in camp, but it was in a place in the woods that he wouldn't have found on his own. I mean, he was an adventurous guy, but there, there's no way he would have found this without somebody showing him uh, how to get there. And so Frank was the kind of guy who 
would have stopped and asked someone like, hey, man, can, you know, is it a place I can find, you know, you can camp in the woods or a place where I can stay? And, you know, he would have hooked up with some people like, yeah, and hey, is there can, a place where we can buy some weed in town? And That's like just, the Grateful Dead ethos, right? You just show yes, up. Yes, exactly. You show up, you ask yeah. people, and, and they treat you well. And they, right. So it, it was apparent that somebody had shown him uh, where this place was. So his body was found by two young, uh, young guys, teenagers, who were related. Tommy McDowell, he was 18 years old at the time, and his cousin Chris Nance, who was 14 at the time. They were out, They, according to the police report and according to what they told the police, they were out playing in the woods or walking in the woods. And these are woods where they grew up, very near where they grew up, and they, this is where they spent a lot of their time. And they stumbled upon his body. Then they ran back across the road to the family restaurant. Chris Nance's family owned one of the most popular seafood restaurants. And, and it's still there in Myrtle, in Myrtle's Inlet. And went called the police from the restaurant and said, hey, we found this body. Right. So they know. found. I don't know how much detail you want me to get from that point. Go, now go into detail. I mean, I think it's important. Yeah. These characters... The father, the environment at that time. I mean, yes, this was what eighty-two. So, so yeah, there's so there's something you got. Yeah, think about Merle's Inlet, a fascinating place. It is dubbed the seafood capital of South Carolina. It is in an unincorporated town. The county line literally runs through the north side of town. So part of Merle's Inlet is in a north, the county to the north, and part of it is in Georgetown County. So. For years, it has been a place where jurisdiction has always kind of been up in the air, like which sheriff is going to cover, which like, you know, who's, whose responsibility is this town? Is it yours or mine? And fascinating that Merle's Inlet had a history, like hundreds and hundreds of years of history of being kind of a pirate town. It was a, uh, uh, because it is an inlet, there's an inlet from the ocean, which means there's a, a place there where ships could could come in and, you know, uh, hide out from storms and that sort of thing. And there was a system of creeks and, and a labyrinth of, of creeks and and uh, channels where boats could hide. So it became a place where pirates literally came and hid out and hid their stuff. And during the Revolutionary War, they ran uh, weapons through there. Uh, during the Civil War, the blockade runners would run um, weapons and supplies to the south through uh, Merle's Inlet because it was a it was a, a place to it was easy to get in and out of without being seen. And then during Prohibition, they ran liquor through there. Then as the years went on, they were running drugs through there. And in the eighties, it was a haven, crazy haven for cocaine and weed that just was coming through in there on shrimp boats because it's a fishing village they had all these boats right and all these shrimping vessels and you know oyster clam uh they, they were running fishing uh you know adventures you you could hire a boat to take you out fishing and um so there were fleets of boats in and out of there all the time well it's a perfect place it's a perfect way to to bring drugs in right. and as it turns out Chris Nance's father, Paul, who ran Nance's Oyster Roast, one of the most popular restaurants in town, was also the town mafia boss. He ran the drug trade 
and he owned many a lot of the shell fishing rights in the waters. So he which he, he would sell off to other boat captains. So he had a fleet of boat captains under his command. And so this guy, and unbeknownst to a lot of people, but also well known to a lot of people, was ran this a drug empire. And so there were stories I heard about people uh, getting cut up with chainsaws and thrown to the alligators and gunfights. And it was just a crazy kind of lawless environment. And this is the environment that Frank came into. You know, this, this gentle, trusting soul rolls into town and and steps into this. Um, right. right. So like yeah. and this Nance guy is like an enforcer. People are fighting in his restaurant. Just crazy oh. stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Crazy stories. Uh, I mean, I just, <laughs> I mean, so it's a far cry from the, uh, you know, the Irish Catholic neighborhood of Brookside, Kansas City, where I grew up. Uh, so yeah, we didn't have done fights. Uh, so what happened next? So so he was found his his the record of his death was found nine years later. Well, so point? yeah, so so they they had an unidentified body, and so they didn't, you know, they went through the uh, you know the the protocols, and but it was this was before the National Crime Computer had been established in the United States. So at the time, all these jurisdictions were working autonomously, and there really was no national clearinghouse for this stuff. But it was on the horizon. This this new this new uh, computer was supposed to come online and sometime in early 1983. So a lot of the advice the McGonagall's got was just just hang tight. We're going to have this national crime computer. They're gonna, we're going to be able to find Frank. And uh, but there were some miscues and some misfilings and and he, he, his information never got on there. So Frank's body was in the morgue in Charleston, South Carolina, at the university there for five years. And finally, the doctor who was the head of that contacted the coroner in Georgetown County and said, hey, we got this body. It's been in here for five years. You need to do something with it. So the coroner went and picked it up and brought it back and buried Frank's body there in, in Georgetown. And so there had been some speculation at the time that the boys who found Frank's body were, in fact, the ones who killed Frank. Tommy McDowell, the older of the two, 18-year-old troublemaker, had a long history of, of stealing checks, steal, breaking into people's houses, lighting fires, stealing bikes, cars. He was, he was just a, a troublemaker, a local troublemaker. Um, and pretty much everybody in town kind of agreed it was Tommy who did it, but they never had evidence to pin it on. Um, so I, when I stumbled upon this story, I went, you know, interviewed the McGonagall's, went to Merle's Inlet in 1995. In uh, February of 1995 was my first trip there. And I started poking around and started asking people. By the time I had gotten there, Tommy was dead. He had died in prison actually the previous fall. He had gone to prison on a check kiting a, a scam that he was running. And he died in prison. And so I was never able to meet him or interview him. I did meet Chris Nance, and he gave me a lot of information about what was going on at that time. And something told me, something in my gut told me that as troubled as Tommy McDowell was and as much trouble this kid had gotten into, 
he didn't do it. I just, it was just, my gut was like, everything I learned about this guy was, yeah, he was, he was kind of maybe me, but, but he was just trouble and troubled, but he, he never did anything physical. Like he never got in a fight that I knew of, you know, or never physically beat up, stabbed, shot anybody. And so it seemed out of character for him to do, to kill, actually kill somebody. So that's, that's kind of where my gut was at the time. Shall I tell you who I met while I was in? Yeah. This is where it gets interesting, right? <laughs> okay. It gets, so it goes from a true crime family story to supernatural almost. Or yes. So spiritual, whatever you want to call it. Right. So as a journalist, I had been trained to keep myself out of the story. And that was my intention from the beginning of this. I'm not, this is not my story. I'm here to tell someone else's story and someone else's journey. So to stay out of it, well, I got sucked into it and I got sucked into it big on that visit to, to South Carolina. So while I was there, I was stay, uh, I checked into a bed and breakfast and it was off season. So I was the only one there. I had this whole place to myself, this lovely inn owner who was um, super kind. And anyway, while I was there, two women moved in across the hall from me one night and we chatted, you know, struck up a conversation. We went out and had drinks that night and, um, and I find out when I first meet them that one of the women is an energy reader. That is another term for psychic, although she does not like to be called a psychic. It's a euphemism. It's a much more pleasant term yes. than psychic. Right. right. And she reads powerful. energy. She, yes, she, and her friend had told uh, all kinds of stories. Oh, you got to talk to her. She's she's worked with FBI before. She's worked with sheriff's departments. She's helped solve crimes. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I'm whatever. I'm a jur journalist. Like, hey, okay, I, I, I don't know what this is, but, you know, um, I was trying to be uh, I, I, reasonably skeptical. And so the next day we were at brunch with the owner of the bed and breakfast, and she asked me how my research was going said, hey, I've interviewed a lot of people in town over the last four or five days I've been there. I said, you know, everybody in town thinks Tommy McDowell killed the boy in the woods. And that's what they called Frank. He was known as the boy in the woods. And uh, I said, you know, I get the feeling that he didn't kill him. I said, I get the feeling that the guy who killed Frank is still here, still living here in town, and he's still alive. And people are kind of covering up for him. And Carol, my new friend, the energy reader, said, you're right. And I said, okay, well, you, what do you mean I'm right? She said, you're right. Uh, Tommy McDowell did not kill Frank. And the guy who killed Frank is still here living in town. And I said, okay, how do you know that? She said, oh, I just know it. And she said, it was no coincidence that you and I met this weekend. Wow, we yeah. were meant to, I'm here to help you. I said, okay, I don't know what your deal is, but if you're here to help me, will you go to the woods with me where they found Frank's body? And she said, of course. So that afternoon, I took her to the woods where they found Frank's body, and she recreated for me in amazing detail uh, the entire murder scene. Like, Didn't she say, like, Frank's spirit bumped into her or something like that? Yes, it was the first thing when we got in there, which was... It, it, we, I was following very close behind her because I was like, what's going on? I was, she, she was bold, like, all right, let's go into the woods. No, it's not here. It's over here. And she took me over to another area. And then she kind of fell and fell back into me. And I, I almost knocked me over and I kind of caught her. 
And she started laughing. She said, somebody pushed me. I'm like, okay, well, there's nobody here but you and me. So who pushed you? And she said, it was Frank. Uh, he was kind of like saying, hey, I'm here. This is, I, I'm here, you know. And he just wanted to let me know. She said it was playful. It was meant to say like, hey, I'm right here. So, yeah. And she proceeded to tell with amazing detail what happened. And she gave me uh, details about the McGonagall family, the argument that he had had with his brother, Mike, before he left, an argument he had had with his mother before he left. Uh, she described the people involved. She said there are three people here. One of them she described fit Frank's description perfectly. The other fit the description of Tommy McDowell. And there was a third guy and whose description I did not recognize. It was not anybody I had met since I'd been there. But there was a third person there. And she said pretty much as all of his siblings had thought it went, had thought it, you know, the, the situation had gone down. He asked, hey, is there some place in town where I can buy some weed? Uh, and the guy, one of the guys was like, yeah, sure. There's a guy in town that sells pot. I can get it for you. And Frank said, hey, let's go. And the, the older guy, well, the taller guy who fit Tommy's description said, you can't come with me. Just give me some money. I'll take it and buy the pot and come back. He won't sell it to you if you're with me. So Frank reached into his sock. And she said that she said he reached without me saying anything about wow, a sock. So she had she reached, he reached into a sock and pulled out some money. And I thought, well, that's where he kept his money. Peeled off a $20 bill, gave it to this guy who fit Tommy's description. He left, Tommy left legitimately then to go buy the pot. While he was gone, the other guy saw Frank's money and said, give me your money. Pulled a, pulled a little 25 caliber pistol out and said, give me your money. And Frank laughed at him and said, no. Guy fired a shot that grazed him. Fired another shot that killed him. Yeah, right. And that's a lot of money. Even even now, I mean, thirty oh hundred bucks a lot of money, right? Thirty five hundred sure. bucks. Yes, you bet. I mean, so so when then, according to her, when Tommy came back, he was like, "What the hell happened here? Like, whoa! I just thought we were having some fun, and you know, gonna you know have a have a good time in the woods tonight, you know." And the other guy laughed and said, oh, you should have seen his face when I shot him. And, and then he kind of, they kind of panicked, like, well, what, what do we do with this? So they left, she said. And she told me all this. They left and they came back with someone else in another car. Then she said they took Frank's driver's license. They took his information. She said then they drove his car. They took his car and they drove north. She said they drove north of Myrtle Beach. Well, a couple months later, they found Frank's car abandoned across the North Carolina border in Wilmington, North Carolina. And uh, still, even finding his car a couple months later after he left home, they were still unable to make that connection with this unidentified body. Just, I don't know, a uh, little over 100 you, miles away. It showed a little bit of criminal sophistication, right, to take the car away and put it into another jurisdiction. like Indeed. Uh, Clean, cleaned up the crime scene. And there had to have somebody help him. And I suspect it was Chris's father, Paul, who would know how to clean up a crime scene. Right, like know what to do it right. Wow. Yes. So very dark. Like it gets, uh, it reminded me of like True Detective or something, like some kind of border town on the ocean where all kinds of dark stuff kind of happened. And it, it progresses. It actually gets more interesting. But you don't want to give away the full story. But right. 
right? There's, I mean, there was a lot of interesting themes in this also kind of like family loss, but also resolution. Yes. So yes. I, I found it's not just a crime story. It's also about life and, uh, yeah. 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 And arriving at a place, you know, uh, a lot, well, well, for one, a lot of people ask me, well, so you solved the crime. Well, we'll see. Uh, it, I'll leave it up to you. And it's not tidy, but I arrived at a place that I'm comfortable with and I won't call it, uh, you know, a place of, uh, resolution per se exactly, but, but, and, and his family as well, a, a place of acceptance, I guess. And to say, okay, this is what happened to Frank. And, and, uh, as, uh, ugly and twisted and sad as it is, it is what it is. And, you know, his brother Mike told me at one point, Frank's story, unfortunately, is no different than thousands and thousands of other stories of people around this country alone who whose life was taken uh, uh, in, in a situation or you know, murdered using a handgun that shouldn't have been on the streets to begin with. And so he's like, in a weird sort of way, yeah, every story is unique. Every story is about a person that, that was loved and, and people knew, you know, as a son of a brother. But uh, he's like, it's it's really like a bunch of these other stories, unfortunately. Right, similar. But also, you know, it's about family rev resolution. At least there was some kind of bookend yes. at the there was a beginning but there was also an end at least there was something that people just say this is what happened you know yeah, absolutely and and we went back i went back to Merle's Inlet in 2019 with um with Mike, Mike, right? yeah. Frank's younger brother youngest brother and my brother Tom and uh we interviewed a lot of people over again and some new people and it was a chance for Mike to see kind of where Frank died and visited his grave and, you know, and he had his own, yeah, he had his own resolution. But for me, where I landed was a place I hadn't expected to land. And that was in a place of compassion. Now, of course, I had deep compassion all the way through for the family, for Frank's family. And, 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 I, and I think uh, I was biased because I knew them, right? I, this, these were my neighbors and my friends and, and, you know, my family in a sense. Uh, but I also had a great, landed at a great place of compassion for the alleged perpetrators, which were the three guys that they assume were involved. But each one of them led a tragic, sad life themselves. And I've really found my place not in a place of wanting revenge or, you know, you know, kind of street justice or anything. But gosh, in a real place of compassion for these guys, and thinking to myself, would I have ended up the same way had I grown up in this place? You know, right, right. Oh, that's a good point. That's interesting. There's a lot more to the book. I suggest people check it out. They can get an audio book of this too, right? That's yes, available. I read the audio book. By the way. Oh, nice. Great. Yeah, so that's it. And do you recommend Amazon for a place to get for people to get Ripple, or is there another? Well, I always, always, always encourage people to go to their local bookstores because you any bookstore in the country can order it from Penguin right. Random House. So I encourage you to do that. Please uh, support your local bookstores; they can get it. 
And yes, you can get it on all of the online uh, platforms as well and all the audio platforms. Right. So you can listen to Jim Cosgrove to tell the story of his own book, yes. his own journey. It's your journey too. It's not just Frank McGonigal's, the McGonigal family. Right. But your and the McGonigal's well. really let me know that. And I appreciate them so much. And I have a great, great gratitude for them. But, you know, his dad, before his dad died, he told me, you know, Jim, you are now part of this family because of this, you know, and, uh, yeah. And I felt in a weird sort of way, like I was an interloper, a voyeur or something, you know, kind of, but I really did get sucked into it. And, and, um, but your involvement also allows other people to see that first person human story as well. So yeah. kudos to you. And this Thank book you. just came out April 5th here on Amazon 2022. So you're yes. in the first 12 days. So people can really oh, check yeah. this out. I highly recommend it. Really well written for first book. You can tell you have a, some other prior skill writing. Uh, Thank you. I think it comes through in this book. Because I read the whole Thank thing. You. I finished it all. Here it is again. I was sent to me by his publisher. So people check out this great true crime book. It's a much... I like the difference of being like the, your standard true crime book that you and I talked about in the pre-show. Yeah. But again, author's name is Jim Cosgrove. Book title again is Ripple, A Long Strange Search for a Killer. Thanks so much for your time, Jim. William, thank you. Appreciate it. Take care. See you next time.